Well, last week I was extremely convicted by James, as I know many people were. And I got stuff falling everywhere here. Um, Stan Langhoffer had a good idea that uh, if you guys want to, we still can. Um, He thought this week we should actually take the book of Leviticus and start memorizing it here in church. I thought it was a great idea. I wouldn't have to prepare anything, and we could just kind of uh, just read. I don't know about you guys. My family hasn't memorized. Uh, Sam slowed us down a little bit at one and a half with the memorization, but uh, I think we got it under control now, though. I'm just kidding, by the way. Just kidding. I do want to start off just with a, a story about my announcement. When I was in sixth grade, now you have to understand, I grew up in a home, and um, I've already been told to talk about hairy Italians a lot because they thought that was funny, but I grew up in the home of a hairy Italian football coach, and so I loved football. And uh, I thought pretty highly of myself when it came to football, and every recess, um, I played football. I was the one that had my hand raised to call out for the football when they went around and they asked for which equipment you wanted at recess. I always said, I want the football. It was just a given. So we'd go out to recess, and I'm telling you what, I'm going to brag a little bit. I'm sorry, but I'm going to brag a little bit. I was awesome. I was awesome. The kids could not tackle me. They couldn't stop me. I dominated the sixth grade at Crespi Elementary School. And one night, I went home. And I announced to my two older brothers, my dad, my mom, that I'm going to the NFL. <laughs> There's a few chuckles here. They, they laughed a lot harder. They, they spit milk out through their nose. They rolled on the floor. And my brothers, one, my oldest brother, how in the world are you going to go to the NFL? I said, you should see me at recess. I'm awesome. They can't tackle me. I am so good. And my dad gently informed me, that I wasn't very good, and who I was comparing myself to, they weren't very good either. (laughs) He tried to humble me, but it didn't work. I still thought I was pretty good, and uh, still had this notion that I was was pretty good at football. So I grew up, went through junior high and high school, and I was pretty good. I I ended up being starting quarterback at Topeka West High School. It was all city, and had some other good things, and I had some scholarship offers, and I still thought I was pretty good at this game. NFL was starting to slip a little bit since I was five foot seven, but, you know, I was a pretty arrogant kid. But when I got to my senior year, I wanted to play football in college, and I had very few people even interested in me. Some very small colleges were interested. That wasn't good enough for me. My brother in front of me had decided to go, because he didn't get any Division I scholarship offers. He was much better than I was. He went to Caulfield Community College was an All-American, went on to the University of Northwestern in a full ride, and I'm thinking, that's the way I'm going to go. I'm going to follow right in my brother's footsteps. So I went to Caulfield Community College, and I showed up the first day of practice, and there's five quarterbacks. They already had the depth chart made out. I thought was just completely unfair, but they had me at number five. Number five. I think we stepped up in height as, as we went through. But after the first week of practice, I thought, you know, this is just flat-out unfair that they have me at the fifth-string quarterback. I should be about 10th. In fact, the coach should have packed my bags and sent me home. I was so bad compared to these kids that I was playing against. They were awesome. The starting quarterback, I'll talk a little bit more about later, was the starting quarterback at Missouri. This guy's six foot three. He could throw it 80 yards in the air. He was awesome. 
And I was terrible. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I all of a sudden realized, you know what? I'm not that good. I'm not that good compared to these people. But I was still pretty good compared to the sixth graders at Crestview <laughs> Elementary School. And I guarantee even now I could go back and beat them. You know, in life, we compare ourselves to the world. And it's so easy to say, you know what? Compared to Stan Langhofer, I'm pretty good. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Stan. I'm really not. But, you know, we walk through life and we compare ourselves to the world instead of to what we should compare ourselves to, and that's Jesus Christ. I want to read to you the words of a song that the late Rich Mullins wrote. The title of the song is Hard. Well, I'm a good Midwestern boy. I, give, I won't sing it, I promise. Well, I'm a good Midwestern boy. I give an honest day's work when I can get it. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my girl. I've got values that would make the White House jealous. Well, I do get a little much over-impressed till I think of Peter and Paul and the apostles. I don't stack up too well against them. But by the standards around here, I ain't doing that awful. Lord, it's hard to turn the other cheek, hard to bless those who curse you. Lord, it's hard to be the man of peace. Lord, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to be like Jesus. And that is exactly right. You know, when we compare ourselves to the world, we're not too bad. We are not too bad. And it's so much easier to take what we should be and lower it down to here and then feel pretty good about ourselves than it is to keep the goal up here. I want to be like Jesus and keep striving for that. You know what? I got my notes all mixed up here. I apologize. I'm practicing this morning. Um, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, very simply it says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That doesn't leave us much room for error, in my opinion. If we claim to be Christians, we must walk as he did. And you know what? He said some pretty incredible things that I find it extremely difficult to live up to. I'm just going to tell you a few. Out of Matthew chapter 5, when he's given the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's good. People shouldn't kill each other. But he says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. I mean, we can't be angry at our brother. We're not talking about killing. We're talking about anger. How many times have we been angry with our brother? Then he says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow, it gets harder. And it's it's easy not to do the actual thing, but in your mind and in your heart, man, it gets tougher. Then he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This one kills me. Do you know, if someone attacks me, I have to stand there and take it, whether it's verbally or physically, I can't hit him back. I mean, how many of us have been taught growing up, if someone hits you, my golly, you hit them back. My dad told me to do that to a kid at school that was picking on me. He hit me with a lunchbox. And he said, well, tomorrow you hit him with your lunchbox. Jesus says, don't do it. Let him hit you with the other lunchbox. 
Then he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want to see a show of hands. How many people prayed for someone they can't stand this week? I didn't. i got to put my hand down. That's hard. Because, you know, it's easy to pray for those we love, for, for Bethany and, and for those here in the church. It's easy. But for someone we, we really don't like? Wow. <laughs> He sure makes things hard. In verse 48, he he just makes it absolutely impossible. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can we live up to this? How can we live up to this? It is so difficult. You know, the Apostle Paul is someone that I admire, and all of us are aware of how he lived his life. But listen to his words. He states it twice. Not that I have already obtained all this. He just got done telling the Philippians how they should be. And then he says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or I already have been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, he says it again, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul was not perfect. We are not perfect, but the key is to press on. Realize where we fail God and commit yourselves to that goal of Jesus. Don't lower the standards. Keep the standards there and just keep pressing on. King David, think of King David. He was the man after God's own heart, but we read about him. He was a liar, a cheater, a murderer, an adulterer. He was a mess. And he was the man after God's own heart. Why? Because when he sinned, he fell on his face and he tore his clothes and he mourned because he was sorry. And he pressed on towards the goal of Jesus. That's why. He was the man after God's own heart. That's why. Because he strove and he tried to remain in Christ and he kept him as the goal. It's too easy to bring it down here. My roommate in college always said, when we'd start picking on him, go ahead, tear me down so you can make yourself feel better. And he said it jokingly sometimes. But it's true. We, we, We lower the standards so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's much easier than raising the standards. Now, how are we going to do this? I have to admit, I am a football coach, and I'm following James Waldy, Mr. Intellectual. And he came up here, and he talked about all kinds of stuff, very convicting and just an awesome message, but he's too smart for me. Okay? He may not admit that, although he did say I was a poetic football coach, which I appreciated. But I must keep things simple. And so I turn to Psalm 1, and I read this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Okay, football terms here. Okay, I'm sorry to throw football out so much. Football terms. Don't do bad things and do what God wants you to do. Don't do bad, do good. That's, it's that simple. It's that simple. It's that basic. That's what God wants of us, to reach the goal of living like Him. 
I told you I'd get to the, to the story of the starting quarterback at Cockfield, and here it is. Corey Welsh. Corey Welsh, I was scared to death of. He was a big, big man, and he was talented. When he was in high school at Wyandotte High School in Wyandotte, Kansas, he was an all-state quarterback, and he led his basketball team to the state championship. He was renowned across the country as the best athlete, or one of the best, I should say, one of the best athletes in the country. He could have played basketball or football, Division I, any place. He chose to go to the University of Missouri. He went there, made it as the starting quarterback as a freshman, which is unheard of. I'm, I'm telling you, to be a starting quarterback at any major college is a, a feat. I mean, this guy was an athlete. He lasted four games, and playing Oklahoma, he got tackled and tore his knee, his ACL. He was done for the year. Now, he had a choice. He could stay at Missouri, train, get it back, and he would have been just fine. But Corey had this knack for getting into trouble. He couldn't stay away from the bad people. And in high school, he had a reputation for being around drugs and selling drugs. Well, it followed him to Missouri. He disappeared from the team. No one could find him. He was gone. Lost his scholarship, got involved in drugs, ended up back in Wyandotte, Kansas. But someone from Coffeyville found him. From where I was, happened to be the year I was going there, someone finds Corey Welsh. said, Corey, we'll give you another chance. Come to Coffeyville. We'll give you another chance. He comes, meets me. He called me Little Man. Little Man. Because I was a little man compared to him. Didn't say much, but he was awesome. I'm telling you what, he was fast. I mean, we're talking like Michael Bishop, for those that follow K-State. And we're talking Michael Bishop type, type quarterback. He was talented beyond talent. And he played three games. We were 3-0. and He was dominating Coffeyville, which is a very good junior college. I mean, we're talking, there's some good athletes in there. A lot of good, good football players. And he's just dominating this league. And I, if you remember, I was the fifth-string quarterback, so they didn't let me dress for the game. So I came back after the weekend. I came back after the weekend, and I walked into my room. My roommate says, Walton, you're going to be dressing next week. So what happened? I get, to, I get to dress for a game? What happened? He said, uh, Corey got in a little bit of trouble. What did he do? Well, after the game, he was celebrating. So he went down to the local bar, and he was dancing with some girls, and some guy cut into the dance, and he was upset. So he walked out to his car, got a gun, came back in and shot him. Didn't kill him, luckily. But he shot him. Not very smart. <laughs> Not very smart. He's gone from Cockerville. Obviously, he didn't remain in jail for too long. I don't know. But I had not heard of Corey until 1995. I've graduated from college. I'm in Topeka. Open the sports page, and there's Corey's name. He's back again in the sports page. Except this time it says, Corey Welsh found dead in parking lot in Wyandotte, Kansas. Went back. Drug deal gone bad. He couldn't stay away from the wickedness of the world. Now you think... Come on, Chris. I'm not into drugs. I'm not into this stuff. I'm nothing like Corey. But you know what? Anything short of Christ is wickedness. Anything short of what we're supposed to be doing for him is wickedness. It's wrong. And we have a tendency to find it. Maybe it's not to the extreme of Corey, but it's to the extreme of sin. And that is what's wrong. You know, there's many, many verses in the Bible that hit on this exactly. Here's just a few. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. Every kind. 
Second Timothy says, anyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We must get away from it. Stay away. James ch- chapter 1, verse 27, at the end of that verse, it just simply says, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, when we start talking about wickedness in our world, I can hit on a million things. There's a million things that cause it. But I'm going to pick on television just for a short time today. And I have to brag a little bit again. Over three years ago, Lisa and I got rid of cable. Because I was just a little bit holier than thou. And I was pretty good, so I got rid of cable. Unfortunately, Lisa told me this week that that wasn't it, that we didn't have the money to pay for it. So we got rid of cable. But thank goodness we did. Because, you know, after we got rid of it, we didn't have a good antenna. We had maybe one, maybe two channels. Kind of quit watching it. And, and, and now, every once in a while, we'll come downstairs from putting the kids to bed and we're tired and we just want to be entertained, don't want to read, don't want to do anything else. Flip on the TV and within minutes, our jaw's on the floor and we're looking at each other saying, how is this possible? How can we sit and let this filth into our house? Do you know the average American family in the United States has the television on seven hours a day? Seven hours a day, this filth pours in. And I'm telling you what, it is filth. I don't care what you say. I hear all the arguments from kids here at school, from other parents. You know, it's not that bad. It's not all bad. You know, we know the difference between television and real life. All these arguments. I have one analogy. I don't know if it's a good one or not, but I think it's kind of funny. Here you come to church. Here you come to church one morning all excited about the church service. And you're thinking... All right, people are happy, people are friendly, and here's the preacher gets up to talk, and he starts preaching the Word of God, and every once in a while he just swears at you. For no, no particular reason, just does. And then he starts preaching the Word of God again. Well, up here to hold his Bible is a couple of Victoria's Secret models, kind of dancing back and forth. as he's pre- and Now, he's preaching good stuff here, okay? So please listen to him. Okay? And then the choir loft back here has a... Has a few guys and they're, they're drinking Budweiser and, and, and they're, they're screaming funny things into the phone at each other trying to say hi and it, it's, it's just a, it's chaos but listen the guy's preaching good stuff you would grab your kids and you'd cover their eyes and you'd run out and you'd say what a horrible church I'll never go back there but then you go home and turn on the TV and you see the same stuff and even worse I'm telling you it, it, it is bad stuff, and I have not attained it. I have not turned it off completely, because I like sports too much, I admit. But it is bad. I mean, we have to turn off the commercials because there's so much filth and stuff that just pours through that thing into our society. That's just one way that we can avoid wickedness. Part two. Remember, the first one is to not be bad. To avoid evil. Avoid wickedness. Number two now just simply says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. I love the def- definition of delight. It means to, to have, where did I, I lost it here, to have great pleasure. To have great pleasure. Delight is to find great pleasure in the word of God. So what it's saying. Then it says to meditate on it. Think deeply on it. And, and the other definition I found for meditate is to make plans on it. Make plans of your life on God's Word. Find great pleasure in God's Word. What a, what a great way. Think of all the things we find pleasure in in this world. For me, I find great pleasure in golf. 
I find great pleasure in coaching football. I find great pleasure in many things. But I have to admit, when I wake up for my 15 15 minutes, a half hour in the morning, I don't always find great pleasure. Sometimes I just sit and read to get it over with. Oh, read God's Word. Okay, I'm done. I'm good for the day. Where's the great pleasure? Where's the great pleasure? Where's the meditation on this? That's what he's telling us to do. I'm going to contrast Corey's story with a man by the name of Jerry. Put Jerry back, senior year of high school. Jerry was not fast, and he was not big, but he wanted to play college football. That was his goal. Now, he's a little different than me. He was bigger and faster than me. But Jerry wanted to play. He had no scholarship offers. One, Mississippi Valley State comes in, and the coach at Mississippi Valley State says, Jerry, I'm going to give you a scholarship for one reason. That's because you have an incredible desire to play football. And he did. In fact, he had such an incredible desire to play football that he would study the films and the, the teams they were playing for hours. And he would show up to practice two hours before practice. The quarterbacks weren't there, so he had to get the, the equipment manager to throw him passes. He'd throw him passes for hours before practice because the quarterback was too lazy to show up two hours before practice. So he was there. He, he found great pleasure in the game of football. And he meditated on the game. Jerry actually came to Washburn to play a game. I think it was his junior year, and I was in high school at the time. I remember the game because Washburn got beat 77 to nothing, and Jerry scored seven touchdowns in that game. I thought, wow, this guy's good. This guy's good. But then you look, he still wasn't that fast, and he still wasn't that big compared to the standards. But when he graduated from college, he was the first-round draft pick by the San Francisco 49ers. And I'm talking about Jerry Rice. For you, Teresa, you're looking at me funny. For you that don't know who Jerry Rice is, he's the greatest wide receiver. Everyone agrees. He's the greatest wide receiver in the NFL. He's still playing, and he's awesome. But he is still not the fastest and still not the biggest, but he had an incredible desire to reach his goal. He found great pleasure in the game he played, and he studied the game he played. We can easily take that into our Christian lives. And we can say if we have that desire to reach the goal of Jesus, if we find great pleasure and delight in his word, and if we meditate on it, Spend time in it. It's like James said last week, you know, if we do not have this memorized and and learning Scripture constantly, we limit what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. That convicts me because I have not spent time memorizing. I've just been doing my duty, just been getting by. The Bible has many things to say in this. Again, just a few, just a few. Delight yourselves in the Lord, Psalm 37 says, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You will seek me and find me, Jeremiah 29 says, when you seek me with all your heart. Every time you are seeking him and taking delight in him, good things are happening in your life because of it. Jeremiah 33 says, call to me and I will teach you great and unsearchable things. So call to him, seek him, seek him out, meditate on his word, and good things are going to happen. Find great pleasure. John chapter 15, one of my favorite verses that I read over and over, one of the few things I probably kind of have memorized. In a paraphrase, Jesus is telling them, remain in me as I've remained in my Father, and because of this, you will find great joy. He says, I will give you my joy, 
and your joy will be made complete. Because you're remaining in him, you're obeying his commands. He tells them, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll obey most of my commands. You'll obey some of them. You'll make an attempt to obey them. He says, you will obey them if you love me. Now, to obey them, we must remain in him. The, the, the idea of the, of the vine and the branches and the fruit that we bear, it's right here in Psalms. The next, the next verse says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in seasons whose, leave, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Whatever he does prospers because he is remaining in Christ. I read a story about a man about three years ago. Reread it last week. And this idea of remaining in Jesus can be taken to a whole new extreme by this man. His name is Frank Lubach. He was born in 1884, and he was a teacher to the illiterate. He was a very, very busy man. He traveled the world. He traveled the world teaching people how to teach and teaching kids how to read so they could enjoy the scriptures. When he was 45 years old, he was completely dissatisfied with his spiritual life. And so he made a commitment. I'm going to read you this commitment and some of the things that he writes in his diary from then on. Can we have that contact with God all the time? All the time awake, fall asleep in his arms, awaken in his presence. Can we attain that? Can we do his will all the time? Can we think his thoughts all the time? Can I bring the Lord back into my mind flow every few seconds so that God shall always be in my mind? I choose to make the rest of my life an experiment in answering this question. Now, these are Frank Lubach's words. Okay? But here in the Bible, it is right there. It tells us these same things. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Then you go on a few verses to verse 16. It says, be joyful, always pray continually. You can't really mistake in that. Pray continually. And then, this one really hits home. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It's right here in our Bible, in the Word of God Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. I stand here and tell you this, and I tell you I have not even come close. But wow, what a thought. What a thought. Way to, what a way to live our lives. Now listen to this man that attempts this. Now remember, he's not a monk. Okay? He's not living in the monastery, just, just dwelling on God all day long. Okay? He is a busy man. March 1st, 1930, he writes, The sense of being led by an unseen hand which takes mine while another reaches ahead and prepares the way grows on me daily. Now this is the beginning of his, of his quest. And he senses God's hands on him. And he senses the other one just, just preparing the way preparing hearts of those around him, preparing the minds of those he's going to talk to, clearing the way, making things go right, because he's in communion with Christ. That's an awesome thought. Then, April 18, 1930, he says, I have tasted a thrill in fellowship with God, which has made anything discordant with 
God disgusting. Anything that's not in line with God, he finds disgusting because he is in Christ. This afternoon, the possession of God has caught me up with such sheer joy that I thought I had never known anything like it. God was so close and so amazingly lovely that I felt like melting all over with a strange, blissful contentment. Having had this experience, which comes to me now several times a week, the thrill of filth repels me, for I know its power to drag me from God. And after an hour of close friendship with God, my soul feels clean as new fallen snow. Wow. I mean, this is good. I mean, just the idea of living your life this way. And it gets better. Next, next one, May 20, or, uh, on May 14th, he says, I cannot even do this half a day. Can't even do it half a day. Not yet. But I believe I shall be doing it someday for an entire day. It is a matter of acquiring a new habit of thought. See, our, our habit of thought and mine has been for 12 years now that I've been a Christian, I wake up in the morning, I do my devotions, and then I go on with my life. And I, compared to other people, I'm pretty proud of myself. But that's not what he's saying. And, and that's not what remaining in Christ is all about. It's about taking Him with you and being in constant communion with Him all day long. May 24th, he writes, this concentration upon God is strenuous. It's hard. But everything else has ceased to be so. I think more clearly. I forget less frequently. Things which I did with the strain before I now do easily and with no effort whatever. I worry about nothing. I lose no sleep. I walk on air a good part of the time. Even the mirror reveals a new light in my eyes and face. I no longer feel in a hurry about anything. Everything goes right. Each minute I meet calmly as though it were not important. Nothing can go wrong except one thing, and that is God may slip from my mind. Wow. What a thought. Life's easy. Life's easy. The only thing you have to worry about is God slipping from your mind. This is not a monk, I remind you. It's a very busy man who's living his life trying and straining for a constant relationship with Christ as he says and is very apparent in the scriptures because he says remain in me as I have remained in my father Jesus lived this way no wonder why he didn't sin last Monday was the most completely successful day of my life to date so far as giving my day in complete and continuous surrender to God is concerned I remember how I looked at people with a love God gave they looked back and acted as though they wanted to go with me. I felt that for a day I saw just a little of the marvelous pull that Jesus had as he walked along the road day after day, God intoxicated and radiant with the endless communion of his soul with God. Scripture says, be not filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This is literal stuff. Be filled with God. Like you're drunk on Him. God intoxicated. Constantly walking in Him. Think of how He felt. And when I read this, I can just imagine this man walking down the street with just a smile and thinking, wow, wow, God is with me. I am in God. And people see it in Him. You can see it, the glow on His face. This is how Jesus lived His life. You know, this stuff sounds crazy to me. The first time I read it, I'm thinking, how is it possible? 
And I have to admit, I have tried it this week. I have tried it, and I, I think half a day it would be a miracle at this point. But, but I, I remember getting up early, and I clean a pool, and I remember going to the pool, and I'm, I'm cleaning the pool, and I'm trying to repeat stuff, just constantly saying, God, am I in your will? Am I pleasing you, Lord? And as I'm doing it, other thoughts are coming in. You know, it's a cloudy day. No one's going to swim today. I don't need to clean this pool that well. Am I in your will? Oh, man, I've got to clean it good. I've got to clean it perfectly. And I did, and I did it with joy. Just a small, small thing. But would you imagine living your whole life that way and doing everything that's glorifying to God? And, you know, I, I don't know if it's possible to do this. I, I, you know, from what I have, his diary ends in 1930. And, and I'm, I'm, I need to go find more on this guy and see if he continued this. But the fact is... This is how Jesus lived. We can't deny that. And if we are going to walk the way that Jesus walked, we must live in Him, in Him, in Him, in constant surrender to Jesus Christ. No wonder why He never sinned. James hit on it last week. You know, when he was 17 years old, the man had never sinned. Think about living your life and never sinning. Well, this is why. He was in the Father. And as he walked, he knew the will of the Father because he was in the Father constantly in his mind and his heart. His presence is always with us. But to recognize it all the time, what a thought, what an idea. If we want to live a blessed life, if we want to bear fruit that will last, if we want to have that complete joy that only Jesus can give, if we want to live our Christian lives to the fullest we need to do the four things that I talked about. And believe me, remember, I have not done this. <laughs> I am not up here preaching that way. When I talk to you, I'm telling you, God works in me like you can't believe. I am so convicted by the stuff that I'm telling you today. Number one, set your goal on Christ, not the world. Don't lower your standards to feel good. Keep it on Christ and press on. Constantly press on to that. Know the Word. Know the Word and press on. Number two, avoid all wickedness. Just avoid it. Stay away from it. It's bad stuff and it is not in line with Christ. Number three, find great pleasure in His Word. Find great pleasure in His Word and meditate on it. I love that, to find great pleasure in the Word of God. And number four, strive to be in Christ. Strive to be in Christ always, just as Jesus did. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just uh, pray that the words that uh, were spoken here were not mine, but they were yours. I pray that your Spirit will take them and use them and convict where conviction needs to be. Lord, we praise you that you love us so much that you want us to have this complete joy, that you want us to have this pleasure that you provide us. Lord, help us to live our lives in total surrender to you. In your name we pray. Amen.